1: This episode of Into the Night was made possible by the unwavering support of our dedicated Patreon donors. Their generosity allows us to delve deeper into the mysteries that await us in the dark world of Five Nights at Freddy's. If you are captivated by the secrets we unveil and wish to be a part of our journey, we invite you to explore our Patreon page. By becoming a patron, you not only get behind-the-scenes insights, bonus content, and special perks, but you also play a vital role in sustaining the future of this podcast. Visit the link provided in the description below to learn more and join our community of Avid Night Explorers. And welcome to Into the Night, a Finance of Freddy's podcast. I am your host, Nick, and thank you for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, today marks the culmination of our patient anticipation, the highly awaited release of the Finance of Freddy's movie. Although production for this cinematic endeavor only commenced in February of this year, the project has languished in the convoluted depths of Hollywood's own version of Ultimate Cousinite for years now. Countless scripts and concepts were abandoned, with even Scott, the series creator, engaging in a Reddit discussion to ridicule some of the less promising ones a few years back. The journey has been long and challenging. However, as they say, Patience is a virtue, and our persistence has been rewarded with dividends with a 90-minute silver screen adaptation of The Five Nights at Freddy's World, produced by Blumhouse Pictures, famous for Megan, as they are keen to keep reminding everyone. It is designed for the fervent gaming community specifically, but also for those less acquainted with it. Now, the burning question, was the prolonged wait worth it? In my estimation, yes. The movie is competently executed. Though it doesn't attain the status of a cinematic marvel, my expectations were reasonable, much like when I watched the Mario movie. I hope for an engaging experience, and the film delivered just that. It undoubtedly has room for improvement in various aspects. Is it worth watching? For fans of the series, absolutely. For those less involved, it's a toss-up. Hollywood critics, however, will probably look down upon it. In fact, let's talk about that often controversial Rotten Tomatoes score real quick, because I've seen it on Twitter a lot. It's also been a puzzling element in putting a spotlight in the disconnect of Hollywood journalism, hasn't it? Well, here's a fun fact. Rotten Tomatoes is owned by Fandango, which in turn is a subsidiary of Comcast, the parent company of Universal Studios, the distributor of this very same movie. So why does the critic score remain low if it would seemingly benefit all parties included if it was given the certified fresh badge? It's because the real tomato score is essentially the audience score and it can be influenced behind the scenes without much transparency on part of Rotten Tomatoes themselves. The disconnect between Hollywood and the modern American moviegoer is evident And Rotten Tomatoes recognizes that the audience often doesn't align with critics when it comes to their opinions on movies. When movies like Mario, Detective Pikachu, and yes, Finance at Freddy's are celebrated by their viewers, they know that the audience could care less when the critics lambast them because they don't conform to their social elitist ideals. Also, because they once said the quiet part of Hollywood out loud when they gave remarkably high ratings to a certain French Netflix premiere. So every review site knows the public has also quietly told Hollywood journalists to shove it. So, what can you expect for this film if you're a fan of the series? That is the subject of our discussion tonight. A quick note, this review is completely spoiler free. You won't encounter any unexpected revelations here. We'll delve into specifics only up to what's revealed in the trailer. For those eager for a more detailed, spoiler-related discussion, I would say stay tuned. We'll have Avix and Xanthus back in for a fun conversation about it at a later date. It will likely be available on the Patreon exclusively, but fear not, it won't be locked behind any paywalls. It'll be there for all to enjoy. But we'll see what happens when the day comes. Before we also delve into the core discussion, I'd like to preface with a brief preamble. I want to address both my personal expectations as a longtime fan of the series, who has been anticipating the movie for half a decade now, actually about seven years now, and also my general perspective on the alterations made to the original source material. However, let's first address the most significant issue I have with the film, my my biggest criticism I have for it, and sort of my whole... View, like my one big old negative point. My primary criticism revolves around the movie's duration. It felt as if a 120 minute narrative was compacted into a mere 90 minutes. The pacing mirrors that of the Mario movie in some sense, with scenes transitioning rather swiftly, leaving little room to breathe, despite the events clearly unfolding at a standard pace. An extended runtime could have introduced interludes between action sequences and drama, allowing for a moment of reprieve, along with the inclusion of more intricate details and lore from the original series. Moving on, I'd like to touch upon my initial expectations prior to watching the film. It's widely understood that after an eight-year wait, the film wouldn't be groundbreaking. Similar to my approach with the Detective Pikachu movie, I sought out a popcorn flick. A cinematic experience where I could immerse myself in the visuals of uh, the comedy and simply enjoy a carefree, entertaining time. I wasn't expecting, you know, like freaking Oppenheimer or a Dark Knight out of this. This anticipation also stemmed from the knowledge that my appreciation for the movie would likely surpass that of the average moviegoer, only to my extensive time with the franchise as a whole. You know. I host a podcast on the whole thing. But just like Detective Pikachu, Mario, or Warcraft, this movie primarily caters to the fans of the video game series rather than a mainstream audience. Jason Blum himself reiterated this filmmaking approach during the press tour, emphasizing the focus was on delivering what the fans truly desire to see in the film from the games. However, this perspective becomes somewhat complex when considering the alterations made to the source material. I mean, it was expected that there would be changes, even when catering to the existing fanbase. For instance, introducing Michael as a zombie in the first movie, yeah, that would have been somewhat disconcerting. Furthermore, the trailers alone hinted at an alternate universe being a play here, this being a different take for the series as a whole, with elements from various corners of the other series on display, including Vanessa's presence in the film, signifying there are going to be substantial changes throughout. I mean, this movie takes place in the 90s. Vanessa's like, what, 25 in Security Breach? So, I mean, it's impressive that she's, you know, alive and well when she should be like, what, like negative <laughs> five during this movie in the actual game canon? Oh man. Nonetheless, it's crucial to acknowledge that, despite these alterations, they didn't always yield a net positive result, and the film may have been more intriguing had it adhered more closely to the series narrative. On that note, let's delve into the movie's plot. In a concise summary, the film reimagines the storyline of the original Finance of Freddy's games. Mike Schmidt, who is not connected to the After Family Stem Around, is a blue collar worker in his mid to late 20s, struggling to secure a job. He faces pressure from his aunt to relinquish his guardianship of his younger sister, Abby, following their mother's passing and their father's absence. In a desperate move to find employment, Mike takes on the night shift at an abandoned children's restaurant, Freddy Fazbear's Pizza. And as he spends his night at the restaurant, Mike also experiences lucid dreams through a self-taught, basically lucid dreaming technique all in an attempt to relive a specific experience of his past, which is wildly fascinating, by the way. These dreams soon become infiltrated by five mysterious children, which then leads him to uncover the business's backstory and its connection to his own past as well. Also, during his night shifts, he will encounter a peculiar police officer named Vanessa, who harbors more knowledge than she reveals, animatronics that come to life at night through the spirits of deceased children, and the man responsible for their deaths, as well as the abductor of his little brother years ago. As an overview of the Five Nights at Freddy's narrative. Yes, while some things have been changed for the movie's experience, I think the plot encapsulates many elements beloved by the fanbase. It trims down some of the more out-there elements of the FNAF series, such as Michael being a zombie, sci-fi technology, or deep dives into the paranormal forces of remnant and agony, none of that is in the film. The plot maintains a fairly straightforward trajectory with limited twists or revelations that even a non-fan could easily predict. However, the twists that are present are well executed, I do want to state that, the twists that are there are well executed. The film's handling of the ghost children, especially how they interact within Mike's dreams, being able to communicate mentally while still inflicting physical harm in the real world, is particularly eerie and intriguing. I do wish it impacted the plot or played into its conclusion a lot more, but what's there is fascinating and you know engaging. Certain elements of the movie are clearly tailored for fans, evident in subtle nods like the unsettling balloon boy statue or characters behaving uh, in making references that only a fanbase would get. Uh, the mention of William Atherton's name, which almost beckons applause like in a Marvel movie when a hero walks out from the shadows it's all nice to add in touch it's all nice touches of fan service throughout uh, surprisingly my biggest fear when it came to fan service was that William Acton's presence might overshadow the movie yet the uh, the opposite happened as I found he didn't get enough screen time once again this further underscores my primary critique of the movie when it comes to time and most crucially when it comes to my plot criticisms that pertains to not enough time was not enough information simply put Some stuff is just left completely unexplained and is only able to be understood solely from being a fan of the series. Golden Freddy in particular was the most hilarious example, because not only was there no mention of Fredbear, despite Spring Bonnie being present in the film, but when he does show up, you end up scratching your head even as a fan. There's There's just a moment where you go, oh, they're going in this direction for him, that's a a little weird. I I won't be surprised if during the premiere weekend, this is not the biggest moment where dates turn their heads to their partners who drag them to the movie to explain what is going on with this particular ghost child. And setting aside some pacing issues and dialogue concerns, which I'll address shortly when I talk about the characters, the plot and story aligns with my expectations. The film successfully takes us through five nights, maintaining a consistent narrative flow. I remained engaged throughout, with only a minor lull in the middle where the film briefly veers into a bit of campiness. But overall, the story accomplishes what it set out to be. And I think anyone can enjoy the experience if they, you know, bend their suspension of disbelief just a little bit. Now, let's shift our focus on the film's plot to its acting performances. First off, our main lead, Josh Hutcherson, as Michael Schmidt. While many more were curious about how Matthew Lillard was going to portray William Afton, I was the most curious about how Josh was going to portray Mike. In comparison to Matthew, Josh has less to work with when it comes to bringing his character to life, so how did he fare? Well, I think he did a pretty good job. He went for a wore-down, blue-collar, working archetype version of Mike. He was short-tempered with his little sister, mostly pretending to be involved with her antics and interest, but despite that, deep down wanting to connect with her on a deeper level, yet he still was respectful to those that showed respect back to him, like Abby's teacher or Vanessa. His desire to want to find his brother's killer and his guilt that he was responsible for his death were all fantastic. Overall, I liked the interpretation. My only complaint would be the inquisitiveness of Mike wasn't as present as I'd like it to be. While Josh plays Mike as someone who is willing to learn and adapt, he isn't as proactive when it comes to asking questions as I'd like him to be. The film occasionally portrays his inquiries also in an awkward or untimely manner affecting the flow of certain scenes. Like there's a scene in which he's talking with Vanessa in like the main dining room and Vanessa says something along the lines of, blah, 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 the children that went missing. Then Mike obviously asks, what did you just say? Vanessa ignores him, activates the showtime butt to make the Antrunks dance at scene. And only after they finish their little number does Mike re-ask the question. And even then, Vanessa doesn't give a straight answer despite that probably being something worthy of diving deeper into and being more suspicious than anything. Honestly, that and I wish they had played Mike with a bit more drier humor, but mostly it's how we learned information is where I think the biggest flaw in the portrayal of Mike in the movie was. Nothing that Josh could do about that, so I think he was giving a great performance and arguably was the best one in the entire film. Moving on to Abby, portrayed by Piper Rubio, she managed to bring in a mix of eerie yet sympathetic qualities, occasionally dipping into the stereotype of children being portrayed as somewhat unintelligent. Uh, That latter aspect unfortunately may lead to moments of frustration, which... I can't delve into it without giving away spoilers. However, overall, her presence effectively balances out Mike's more somber demeanor, adding a touch of vibrancy to the narrative. Piper's performance as a child actor was also commendable, and I have no significant complaints about it. Next up, we have Officer Vanessa, played by Elizabeth Lale. She was kind of a nice in-between for Mike and Abby, somewhat bubbly, but can turn serious on the dime. Perhaps a little too on the dime certain scenes. Yeah, if any character has a quote-unquote problem in the film, it would be Vanessa. Gosh, this character cannot get a break, can she? She's just the worst part of everything. She was also the exposition in the mid, like just machine in the movie. Pretty much whenever anything needed to be explained. The movie just popped a quarter in her mouth, and she just went on a long-winded monologue which did disappoint me as it made a lot of the movie tell not show. Exception, the intro credits to the movie, great use of visual storytelling in the Five Nights 8-bit style, and unironically, one of the highlights of the film. Besides that, Elizabeth had a good performance, but the character herself was somewhat of an issue for me. Despite a relatively straightforward plot, she was the one character whose motives now looking back on it, it seemed kind of wonky. I don't know. A lot of things about her just didn't really add up in her actions. I thought they may go in a direction of her being present during the missing children's incident, but they went another way with it. And the way they went with it, once again, spoilers, it 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 adds even more questions to her actions. That's all I'm gonna leave that. That's all I'm gonna leave it with. Uh, Besides the main cast, the supporting cast also did a great job. Mike's aunt, played by Mary Stuart Mason, played a great Karen. Uh, You love to hate her on screen. Every mode of her on screen was also fantastic, very comical. There was one moment where she was openly thinking about killing Mike. Like, that was just uh, dropped. And it was a funny moment because the lawyer was right there and he wanted to bail because obviously, why would he want to be there for that? But it was a very weird scene. Uh... Her lawyer, by the way, who never spoke and looked like a whip dog, was also hilarious. I'm still convinced that was played by Scott Cawthon himself. It looked like him in old makeup, but I could be wrong. And the rest of the ghost children and the criminals you see in the trailers all did really good rage jobs. No performances throughout were off or bad. Everyone was clearly giving it their A game. And everyone displayed great acting abilities. So, great acting all around. Alright, enough stalling let's talk about the big character everybody wants to know about. How was Matthew Lillard's performance as William Afton? The answer. Excellent. But, far, far too short-lived. The film offers only just a a glimpse of William Afton's character through Steve Ragland's introductory scenes. And yes, it it was a pleasure to see more of his social chameleon side however once he fully embodies the character it's a glorious transformation it, it took a moment to adjust to the robotic voice with the spring Bonnie suit on once matthew delved into the role it was enthralling i was eager to see more but unfortunately the movie concludes just as he hits his stride and, and to clarify the, the issue with the character is time and development is not a fault of the actor's but rather a result of the movie's fast-paced 90-minute format, the film offers a taste of what could have been a more in-depth exploration of these characters. And granted, while this does give the film the benefit in that it doesn't overstay its welcome, it also, you know, brings the dismerit of not leaving a significant impression as it could have with a little more time to sit with you. Especially towards the end, where things surrounding after felt more like just snapshot moments they had to include and there was no other moment to put them in the film besides the end things like once again, this isn't a spoiler kind of is, but it isn't the inevitable Springlock failure it was alright but it was pretty abrupt and not as gruesome as I'd hoped they'd go with it and William Afton, when he utters his iconic line of I always come back it kind of just came out of nowhere (laughs) With, like, no build-up. Even as a fan, I thought that line was a bit strange and in shoehorn in, shoehorned in. Like, Scott and the writers knew that if William was going to be in the film, it was expected that he was going to say his iconic mantra. But with the limited time we had with the character, there wasn't anything that really indicated his ability to return, both supernaturally nor psychopathically, besides the fact he decided to return just this one time. In the end craving for more is not entirely a negative. After all, it it isn't 100% a bad thing that after leaving the theater, I was, you know, wanting more of the film. It just, it leaves a desire for a deeper dive into the character's storyline in this entry itself, you know, in this piece of art itself. However, the film's conclusion may leave some viewers with a feeling that certain elements remain unresolved. I like to preface this by saying that this is not a criticism, but rather a quirk that might be unique to me and me alone. This movie draws inspiration from the 90s horror, and it incorporates one of my favorite unspoken tropes from 90s horror films, particularly those involving paranormal or ghostly elements. After the final showdown, when the credits are rolling and the survivors have endured the monstrous onslaught, one question lingered in the back of my mind. Who the hell is getting to blame for all these gruesome murders? <laughs> in the trailer, this isn't a spoiler. This isn't a spoiler. A group of burglars break into Freddy's, and after ransacking the place, gradually falling prey to the Amtrunk band in a series of gory encounters. Surprisingly gory, actually, given the PJ 13 rating. I mean, it's kind of campy, but it's the cheesy horror that fans of the FNAF books will probably adore. But once the movie concludes, and the missing people reports are filed, who is held accountable for all these mysterious disappearances? The film racks up a considerable body count that would likely trigger a city-wide, like wide investigation, would it not? As I mentioned, this isn't a critique. I just find it amusing, But I doubt other people will notice details like that. Who knows? Maybe it's a subtle reference to the consistently inept and ineffective police force in the Finance of universe. Speaking of references... The movie is teeming with Easter eggs, ranging from the glaringly obvious to the incredibly obscure, but overall great. From what I can recall throughout the film, we spot Chica's Magic Rainbow making a cameo as a mascot of a frozen yogurt store in the mall where Mike works. Um, Balloon Boy, as I mentioned earlier, receives significant screen time, serving as a recurring comedic element in the film. Ella from the books also makes an appearance, though in this instance it's the head of a springlock suit. Which still, so it still retains its eerie charm. It was nice to see. Uh, the highlight for me was the cameo by Sparky the dog, a nod to one of the earliest hoaxes in the Five Nights of Freddy's fandom, the rare animatronic dog rumored to appear in the Parts and Service Center that never was. Now exists in the cinematic universe, decommissioned and left to rust in a corner, it was a delightful sight. There were, of course. More cameos sprinkled throughout the film, besides the possible Scott cameo, but but two stood out. Markiplier, as we already know, couldn't find time due to his own film production of Iron Lung, so sadly the king was absent. However, Matt Pat made a fun cameo as a waiter in the film, complete with his signature. That's just a theory line. Uh, was it cringe? Yes, but but you have to be heartless as a FNAF fan to not smile and feel something warm inside you when you you see that on the silver screen. It's the good kind of cringe. The one that makes you feel at home, you know? Uh, Corey also I made an appearance in the movie, playing a taxi driver. Uh, I may not have a strong connection to Corey as I do with Markiplier or Jacksepticeye when it comes to their FNAF playthroughs. Um, Honestly, I have more connection to Johnny Versus, I think. Uh, but it was still heartwarming to see him recognizing the film, and, and the man deserved it. The man absolutely deserved it. Before we conclude tonight's episode, and I give my final rating... I want to delve into a few more elements of the film cinematography. The set design of the pizzeria, truly a sight to behold. The glass artwork featuring the Fazbear game was a delightful addition, it reminded me a lot of the Chuck E. Cheese I had around my place when I was younger. And there is various props showcasing the actual merchandise, like actual real life merchandise alongside the, the custom made posters and market material, all nice fun touches. The Office was a faithful rendition. Even though not an exact one-to-one replica, Uh, it lacks the two hallways and security doors, which is a bit of a letdown. However, the attention to detail, such as the celebrate poster using the in-game animatronic models, the candy-striped cup with the barber motif, and the stack of CCTV monitors, brought back just waves of nostalgia. The inclusion of the vent on the ground, reminiscent of *Final Space* 2, added an extra layer of fun as well. Uh, the lockers with the work uniforms and phasma memorabilia as seen in help wanted and silver eyes the set design for the outside world was equally impressive effectively conveying the film's time period i appreciate the subtle cues that hinted at the film's 90s setting without explicitly stating it was you know the 90s to the audience also let's talk about the animatronics they were absolutely stunning while Freddie and chica might have appeared a bit bulky in some shots They were still fantastic in their own right, but Foxy and Bonnie on the other, they were nothing short of perfection. In particular, Foxy featured some of the cleanest effects throughout the entire film. I occasionally sense the presence of actors beneath the animatronics, but Foxy's immersion remained consistent throughout. In fact, I think he had the most memorable moments, I think the most screen time of all the animatronics in the film. Well, with exception to Mr. Cupcake. The cupcake, they make this thing do some really wild things throughout the film. It was an absolute gremlin. He, he reminded me of uh the, the Chompies from Skylanders just jumping impressive distances, skirting and sneaking around all while sporting this mischievous evil eyes. I I, I love him. I, I couldn't help but fall in love with him. He's my he's my he's my boo now. <laughs> And that just goes to show that the film was able to strike a nice balance, well, a fine balance between horror and comedy, although I think it had the best moments when it was trying to be a horror film. Even during these tense moments, it wasn't afraid to insert a lighthearted joke that felt natural rather than forced. This is exactly how I find it's a film should be presented by the way, never taking itself too seriously and be unafraid to poke fun of itself and its concept. While well, nothing in the film had me bursting out in laughter, I found myself chuckling throughout and the attempt to infuse comedy was both valid and successful. So in conclusion, was it worth the long wait? Certainly. Did I enjoy it? Absolutely. Will you enjoy it? Well, that's a conclusion you'll have to reach on your own. I believe that if you're a fan, you'll have a fantastic time with it. If you're just an average moviegoer, you might not connect with it as deeply, but you'll still find it a worthwhile experience for the time and money invested. As for rewatch value, it's it's not high on the list, I think, yet. Unless I'm gonna catch it a couple times again in the theaters, or, or I'm sharing the experience with someone who hasn't seen it, I wouldn't resist watching it for a movie night. But I also have to acknowledge that I have plenty of other options that might provide a more satisfying viewership, depending on my mood. Now if you're concerned about how Blumhouse handled the franchise and its representation to a broader audience, rest assured, they treat it with care and the result is a great cinematic journey. You don't have to worry about convoluted storylines like Sonic's adopted dad or unexpected departures in the sort of material as seen in Resident Evil movies. The film was handled well and treated with respect. As for my final rating, I'd give it a solid 7 out of 10. Remember, my scale considers 5 out of 10 as an average experience, so 7 out of 10 qualifies as a good piece of art. This film was enjoyable, fun, and definitely worth a watch if you have an interest in any of it. I hope the movie performs well, and I'm eager to see a sequel in the future. Hopefully, it can incorporate more game materials in the story without venturing into the complexity seen in the books. I mean, as long as they continue to draw inspiration from Scott's golden age of the series, as they did in this entry, I'd be genuinely excited to see what a sequel would bring to the table. And with that, I believe that brings us to a good stopping point for tonight's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to stay updated, please consider subscribing, following, or sharing this podcast. It truly helps us broaden our reach. Consider following us on our Twitter, at Fazbear Podcast, joining on our Discord, or supporting us on our Patreon or merch store using the various links in the description below. And if you are just checking out this podcast as a newcomer, welcome! I hope you had a good time and enjoyed the review. And tonight is probably the biggest Finance of podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most of the platforms. Uh, we have an entire audiobook series covering the lore of the entire series, up to Help Wanted, uh, we are still working on covering the entirety of Security Breach and Tales of the Piece of Plex lore. Uh, and, and I hope I have convinced you to give the rest of our content a try. we like to have a good time here, and I hope you had an amazing experience as well. So please leave a comment and give us a good review. We would truly, truly appreciate it. As always, I have been your host, Nick. And I would like to thank you all once again for listening. Have a good night and drive home safe.